0: Bible with you. We're going to be on page 884 in the Pew Bible. We're going to cover quite a bit of ground this morning. Um, We're not going to be able to hit every detail of this passage. It's full of really interesting things that we could spend a lot of time on. Um, But we're going to kind of do a broad overview. Today's Palm Sunday. So uh, traditionally, this would be the Sunday that we celebrate the uh, entry of Jesus into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This is a, a passage that we studied quite a, w- a while ago, but it, this uh, occurrence would have taken place just a week prior to Jesus' death uh, on Friday. So this has happened... Uh, He's been teaching, he's been um, speaking out against the religious leaders, he gets arrested. We've walked through all of these things. He's been tried by the priests, he's been tried by Pilate, and he's been sentenced to be crucified. Crucifixion is a criminal's execution. When we talked about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, that the most um, clear and explanatory way that Jesus explained his death was through a meal. I said uh, that Jesus most clearly said, "This is why I'm going to the cross. Here's some bread." Here's some wine. Today, what I want to do is I want to ask the same question. What are we supposed to think about Jesus' death? but I wanna treat it a little more theologically. So we're gonna overview the text where we see Jesus actually being crucified. I'm gonna point out some details in the text, and then we're gonna be jumping around a little bit into the New Testament. Uh, There's gonna be a lot of verses I'm gonna be calling out. If you're quick with your Bible, you can follow along. If you're not, they'll be on the screen. And so the question I wanna take a look at is, what are we supposed to think about Jesus death. Why did Jesus die? And the death of Jesus, I think, is like the cube. This cube is a care, and it's, uh, it's got a bunch of different diagrams on it. This one is the human heart. You probably can't see it very well. It's small, but it, it lists all the parts of the heart, and this lists all the parts of the lungs, and this has got. And now it's got a skeleton and a muscular system. And you can flip it this way, and it's got a nervous system and the circulatory system. And there's so many different ways to look at this cube. Now, I gave you this cube, and I said, What does this cube tell us? And you said, it said, well, it tells us all about the brain. But then I gave it to somebody else, and they said, no, that's not true. It tells us all about the skin. And then you got into a big fight about it. This is a brain cube. No, it's a skin cube. No, it's a, it's a nervous system cube. That would be silly because it says a lot of different things. It tells us a lot of different information. And the death of Jesus, and what's called in in theology circles, the atonement, is a lot like that. There's a lot of ways to look at the death of Christ and a lot of different things that it means to us. And I want to take a look at three different understandings of Jesus' death this morning. I want to look at Jesus as our example. I want to look at Jesus as our King, and then Jesus as our substitute. So first off, Jesus is our example. Jesus went to the cross as an example of the kind of people that we are called to be. Matthew in this section highlights multiple examples of Jesus teaching that He actually acts out in His way to the cross. Take a look at chapter 26. We're going to back up a little bit. Verse 67, they spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him. He's talking about the priests. Chapter 27, verse 30, then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. I think Matthew is thinking, you should be thinking back to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus said if you you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i tell you don't resist an evil doer on the contrary if anyone slaps you on your right cheek turn the other to him also Jesus is living out his teaching in chapter 27 verse 28 it says the soldiers, they stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. And then a few verses later in verse 31, after they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, they put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now, everyone knows who's reading this in the first century, everyone knows about crucifixion. And when we, when we think about crucifixion and we look at modern art or at least Renaissance area Uh, era art, which is kind of our most um, popular reference for kind of biblical pictures, Jesus is wearing some sort of like loincloth on the cross, right? Well, that's not the way it happened. Crucifixion victims were crucified naked. It It was the worst shame imaginable to be crucified. And so, as the soldiers strip him of his clothes and then mock him with a robe and then take off the robe and put his own clothes back on him, then they're going to take his clothes off again before he's crucified. And it, I think, is supposed to make you think about Matthew 5, verse 40. As for the one who wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Jesus is stripped naked by a corrupt court system. Chapter 27 verse 32 says, as they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon, and they forced him to carry his cross. This is the exact same Roman law that Jesus talks about In chapter 5, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two. The Roman soldiers could say, hey, you, I want you to carry something for me. And the person that they pointed out would have to do it. Simon is forced, mandated to carry Jesus' cross by the same unjust law. And then we remember in chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why are his disciples not fulfilling the role of taking up their cross? Because they've all run away. They're all afraid. And this stranger, this Simon, stands in. And it's these little hints in this narrative that make me think that Matthew is trying to telegraph something about the point of all of this. Jesus is our example. He's taught for a number of years about what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, and he's acting out his teaching. Jesus' earliest followers thought the same thing. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves." Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, He emptied Himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when He had become as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross." The Apostle Peter thinks something similarly in 1 Peter 2.21. He's talking about suffering, and he says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. One more from the Apostle John in 1 John 3.16. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down His life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So, all throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus is our example, not just in His life, but in His crucifixion, in His death. Now, as we go through these different facets of Jesus' death, there's some things that I think we need to keep in mind. If we, if we think about Jesus as our example and we overemphasize this, if, we t- if, if all we think about is Jesus is our example… One of the guardrails that we can bump into and be in danger of running over is that it can minimize our view of human sin. This is something that happened in the early 20th century, if you're aware of the fundamentalism versus modernism controversy. There's this group of Christian scholars who um, basically decided they, they didn't really want to believe any of the weirder stuff in the Bible anymore, that that wasn't, that wasn't logical, we're modern people, and we don't believe in miracles and stuff. And so they decided the only thing that really matters is that Jesus was a really great guy, and we should live like Jesus. And that's kind of true. But if you have to get rid of all the other stuff in order to believe that, you've gone too far. This, this philosophy called modernism, it inflated human goodness It said, you know, we're, we're just like Jesus. Jesus did a good thing. We can do a good thing. We can be a good community of people because Jesus is a good example. And that goes too far. But we can also underemphasize this idea. We can think, you know what? We are so broken and so need of rescue that Jesus can't possibly expect us to be like Him. These commands in the Bible, they're just so hard, and we're such uh, sinners that we can't live up to His example. And we do sin. We are broken. We, We fail in so many ways, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is set up as our example. You may have heard or even said like there's a there's a moral command in scripture and we say, "Hey, look, Jesus acted this way." And we go, "Yeah, but Jesus was God. Jesus could do that. I Jesus doesn't know what I go through at my job." And we tend to underemphasize the fact that Jesus is our example. And it minimizes the power of the Holy Spirit in us to actually do the good things that God commands us to do. So in Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is our example. The second thing is Jesus is our king. This has been one of the overarching themes of Matthew's gospel. If you've followed our, our social media um, channels, you see that every week when we announce the sermon, it's Matthew, the king and his kingdom. And at the very beginning, for those of you that can remember all the way back to 2018, we talked about how Matthew is setting up Jesus as a king. And at the very culmination of his book, the king is uh, defeating his enemies and being enthroned as a royal king. representative of his kingdom. And Matthew highlights this in the crucifixion narrative through irony. Look at chapter 27, verse 29. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. And then in verse 37, above his head they put a charge against him in writing, this is Jesus the king of the Jews. Later in verse 42, they shout at him, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we shall believe in him. See, Matthew is pointing out these things that are done in spite and mockery and hurtfulness, but he's doing it in such a way where he's kind of winking at the reader and going, but he is the king of Israel. He is the king of the Jews. He did come to save. In verse 50, we read, but Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, the rocks were split, the tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Matthew writes that there are these crazy, supernatural, epic things that happen when Jesus dies. As a king, Jesus is claiming his throne by defeating his enemies. If any of you have seen or read the books, uh, The Lord of the Rings... When Aragorn, the king of Gundor, he, he assumes the throne, right? Does he just go into town and say, hey, I'm here, I'm the king? No, he defeats his enemies in battle, and that gives him the credibility to ascend the throne, And this is exactly what the Bible portrays Jesus as doing at his crucifixion. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, 15. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. The rulers and the authorities, these are spiritual powers of darkness that Jesus has defeated on the cross Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says something similar. Now, since children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So Jesus, the king, comes and ascends his throne, conquers his enemies, and rescues sinners. Paul also writes in Galatians 1 Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So, Jesus is our King. One of the ways that I like to imagine this, I've used this um, example before, but I I like it. There's an old movie. It's not that old, I guess. It's called Men in Black. It's pretty old, I don't know. In Men in Black, the the final scene of Men in Black, um, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones are fighting this giant roach alien, the old monster, and they're losing the battle. And at one point, Tommy Lee Jones' gun gets flung out of his hand and the monster eats it. And later on, he goes, okay, I'm tired of this. And he starts walking towards the monster and Will Smith says, "Uh, where are you going? And he goes, I'm going to get my gun back. And he walks up to the monster and he taunts the monster and just uh, eggs him on and dares him to eat him. And so the roach gets mad and he swallows him whole. And the fight continues and Will Smith gets beat up a little bit more. And a few minutes later you hear the uh, charging sound of his futuristic gun coming from inside the beast. And then there's an explosion and then there's bug guts everywhere. And Tommy Lee Jones is standing on the ground. He got his gun back. But I love this example because in order to defeat the enemy, the hero has to be conquered by the enemy. He goes into the belly of the beast to destroy it. And Jesus, as our king, conquers death and sin by taking sin on himself and dying. And in that power, that he will demonstrate in a couple days when he rises from the dead, he defeats death and sin on behalf of the people he's rescuing. Jesus is our example and Jesus is our king. But we can, we can go astray with this Jesus is our king idea as well. We can overemphasize the kingship of Jesus. People get a little weird sometimes when they th- they talk about taking over the world in the name of King Jesus. You may have heard of this. Uh, It's called, there's a philosophy called dominionism. And on its surface, it seems okay because it says that, um, you know, Christians should be in the government, and Christians should be in the education system, and Christians should be making movies, and Christians should be on the billboard charts. And that's great. I think if you're called to any one of those vocations, you should absolutely be in that place and you should serve Jesus well there. But the ide- ideas of dominionism go a little farther and they, they, they see the world as kind of like a, a giant risk board. And if we get Christians in all the highest places of power all around the world, then Jesus will return. It's tied to another uh, doctrine called post-millennialism which is a view of the end of the world that says in order for Jesus to come back and finally set up his throne on earth, we have to turn the world into a completely Christian place. I don't don't think that's exactly how the Bible says it's gonna happen. And I think ultimately our job is, we're called to make disciples, right? We're called to tell people the good news about Jesus. And if it so happens that we Earn positions of political authority, or make really good movies that influence people, or write really great songs that people love, or or are um, in the academy influencing the teaching of students. Those are good things, but they're not the greatest things. The main thing we're to be about is making disciples. We can also underemphasize the kingship of Jesus. We can can ignore him as our king, and that that creates a very small view of the impact of the gospel. I've said this before, and I'm sure you've said it as well. Jesus died on the cross so that I can go to heaven when I die. And depending on how you define heaven, that's kind of true, but the cross is so much bigger than my own personal story of rescue. It's important to me, and your salvation should be important to you. But Abraham Kuyper writes, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus, as king, is in charge of everything, everything. My job belongs to the king. My politics belong to the king. My family belongs to the king. My money belongs to the king. My body belongs to the king. Everything about me and everything about the world belongs to King Jesus. And if we don't think of him as our king, we can lose sight of that. Paul writes in Philippians 2, just past the passage I read a minute ago, he says, Because of Jesus' cross, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our King. But Jesus, he's also our substitute. Jesus takes our sins on himself, and he gives us his righteousness, his goodness. Look at chapter 27, verse 34. Matthew writes, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. This wine likely contained uh, something to dull the pain of the cross. This was some kind of alcoholic beverage, something to dull Jesus' senses, but Jesus refuses it. He will not remove himself from this experience. He will experience everything about the cross. Why? Not because he deserves the cross, but because we deserve the cross. In the very next verse, Matthew writes, after crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Matthew doesn't even give the crucifixion a full sentence. It's probably because everybody in his first audience were well acquainted with crucifixion. Crucifixion is not something that we do anymore. But the Roman military would have crucified thousands and thousands of people every year at the city gates. It'd be like driving down Sherman on Saturday and seeing dead people hanging on the side of the buildings. Just as a reminder, if you commit crime, this is what will happen to you. It was visceral and it was ugly was so ugly, Romans didn't even like it. Cicero, the famous orator from 100 years before Jesus, he writes, the executioner and the veiling of the head and the mere name of the gibbet, that's the name of the, that's what a cross is called, it's called a gibbet, fun fact, uh, should be far removed, not only from the persons of Roman citizens, but from their thoughts, and their eyes, and their ears. For not only the actual fact and endurance of all these things, but the bare possibility of being exposed to them, the expectation, the mere mention of them even, is unworthy of a Roman citizen and of a free man. Cicero writes, we shouldn't even talk about crucifixion in polite society. It's so gross, it's so terrible. Seneca, who was a Roman orator who lived at the same time as the Apostle Paul. He writes, is there such such a thing as a person who would actually prefer wasting away in pain on a cross dying limb by limb one drop of blood at a time rather than dying quickly? Would any human being willingly choose to be fastened to that cursed tree, especially after the beating that left them deathly weak, deformed, and swelling with vicious welts on shoulders and chest, and struggling to draw every last agonizing breath? Anyone facing such a death would plead to die rather than mount the cross." The cross was well known in Roman society and it was brutal. Jesus was beaten within an inch of his life. John mentioned it last week that his insides would be showing from the tears in his flesh. Then he was made to carry his crossbar, which he couldn't do because Simon had to come and help him. He was nailed to his cross through his wrists and through his feet, through incredibly painful nerve centers and you hung on the cross with your chest deflated, hanging by your arms. And the only way you could make room in your chest cavity to breathe would be to push up on the nail on your foot, inhale, and then let down your legs again to exhale. Some criminals would last on the cross for days in agony. Why did Jesus endure the cross? Because of our sin, because of the millions of ways that we destroy ourselves, harm one another, defile the creation, and ultimately betray and reject God. That's the crime that Jesus is paying for on the cross. In verse 46, Matthew writes, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. This is a song written by King David, who when he writes it, feels completely forsaken by God. He is despairing and begging that God would vindicate him. And it feels like there's no hope. This is what Jesus is feeling on the cross. Jesus has had this intimate relationship with God, his Father, forever. And for the first time, he feels alone. The pain of sin and death. And why does he do this? He does it for us. Because we come into this world estranged from God. We come into this world alone, and Jesus takes our place. Romans 3, 22 through 24 says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." Paul also writes in Galatians 3 For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse because it is written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Paul says God has a standard. God has, a, has built a universe and it's supposed to work a certain way. And everything from the fruit flies and the parrots and the snakes to the people have a way that they have been designed by God to flourish and glorify Him. And the only creature that He has created, for the most part, that doesn't do what they're supposed to do, that doesn't live the way they're made to live, is people. No one lives up to their calling by God. And it's not just that we fail, it's that we, we dirty and defile the whole world when we do it. And Paul writes that because we cannot keep the law, that we cannot live up to the standard, Jesus is cursed on our behalf Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, he made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Peter echoes this in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus is our substitute. But even this idea, if this is the only understanding of the cross we have, we can can go wrong. If we overemphasize this, we can get to a place where we see our sin more than we see our savior. There's a, I don't know if it's a technical term, but um, I've heard it called worm theology you know what, I'm just so bad. I'm such a terrible sinner. Everything, you know, I'm just so rotten and awful and wicked and Jesus died for my sins, but I'm just so bad. But see, that's only half of the substitution. Jesus takes our sins away, but he gives us his goodness, his righteousness. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus, I did a quick search this week through all the letters of the New Testament, right? The the letters of the New Testament written by Jesus' first followers to the church around the Mediterranean. How many times do Paul and Peter and John call Christians sinners? Twice. James does it once because he's kind of angry, and Paul calls himself a sinner once. How many times do the authors of the letters call Christians saints? 41 times. We are redeemed people. Our sin is great, but our Savior is greater. And he has taken our sin from us and given his goodness to us. But see, we can also underemphasize the substitution of Jesus. This typically happens when we overemphasize the example of Jesus or the ki- the, the kingship of Jesus. It creates a small view of my own sin. You know, I'm not that bad. I haven't done, I haven't done stuff like that guy. I've never killed anyone. We, we say these things and think these things. Even many of us who have walked with Christ for a long time, we sin and we, we, we have a good reason why we sin. You know, I cut that person off in traffic because, you know, I was absentmindedly not paying attention, but when they cut me off, they're wicked. Right? We, we treat our own sin as not very bad much of a big deal. But when we read the story of Jesus on the cross, we see what not that bad costs. And even if we are the model of the, the kid that grew up in Sunday school and has never smoked and never drank and has all of the, checked all the boxes of goodness, the sin that we have in our hearts put Jesus on the cross. And we cannot underemphasize the cross of Christ as our substitute. The death of Jesus is multifaceted, like my little cube here. We would be foolish to just look at one side of it and think that we have it all figured out. In fact, there's, there's probably more sides on here that I've even ever figured out myself. I don't even know what this is all about. Talked about three different insights that Matthew's depiction of Jesus on the cross gives us. He's our example, he's our king, he's our substitute. There's more. You can you can do a deep dive into what's called atonement theory, and you'll get a whole lot more that people have mined from Scripture. But we need to let all of these ideas impact our lives. We all need to be people that are aware of his substitution for us. We all need to be people who have said, yes, Jesus, take my sin and give me your righteousness. We all need to be people that say, Jesus, you are my king. Whatever it is, it's yours. And we all need to be people that say, you know, Jesus, you're my example. My Holy, your Holy Spirit lives in me and is empowering me to live a life that looks like yours. And this is what brings us to the communion table. We act these ideas out every week when we take communion. Communion says, Jesus, I want to be like you. I take your body and your blood into myself and rely on your power to be the kind of person you are. It says, Jesus, I pledge allegiance to you I put my trust in you as my king, my lord, my master. I give my body, my mind, my soul, my heart, everything that I am in service to your kingdom. And it says, Jesus, I need you. I have failed to live the life that God has called me to live. And I gladly accept the gift of your life as my own and your death as my substitute. So as we close, as we we sing, as we take communion, uh, Kira has created uh, just a beautiful art piece for us this morning. She's incorporated uh, table decoration, uh, culinary arts, a lot of fun stuff. And she's instructed me to tell you that there is a roll of bread for every family. And there's also a little uh, group of grapes, cluster of grapes. So, our communion meal is a little more extravagant uh, this morning. There's some regular communion off to the side, if you would rather participate that way. But my encouragement to you this morning is to think about all of the ways that the death of Christ affects you. Are there ways that you have not considered deeply? Maybe, maybe you have this, a really good grasp on the fact that Jesus died for your sins and to give you his goodness, but you've never really considered that Jesus in his cross is your example or that Jesus in his cross is his coronation as king. Maybe you really love the idea of King Jesus, but Jesus as your substitute. It brings up sin, and sin is, is hard to work through and, and you don't really know how to grapple with that, I would encourage you to just take a few minutes as we meditate on these ideas to think through the areas that you have not taken serious look at in the cross of Christ and, and use this as an opportunity to, to look at the, the, the crucifixion from, from different angles and to marvel in all of the ways that Jesus loves us and serves us through his sacrifice. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.